This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes every Thursday. And if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a rating and a review. Now, today we're revisiting the story of a property which has been described as the most complete surviving example of a Victorian country house in England. Brodsworth Hall in South Yorkshire came into the care of English heritage in the 1990s, and today we're marking the 30th anniversary of it being gifted to the nation. First built as a grand country home for the Tellison family and their servants in the 1860s, Time has not been kind to the house, reflecting the changing fortunes of those who lived here. And joining me to chart the rise, fall and revival of Brodsworth Hall are... And if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Kevin Booth, uh, Senior Curator for English Heritage. Martin Orfrey, Senior Curator for English Heritage. Dan Hale, Head Gardener. If I can start with you, Kevin, you're the Senior Curator at Brodsworth. Tell us a bit more about the property. First of all, where is Brodsworth Hall exactly? The hall and its estate, they're just to the west of Doncaster in South Yorkshire. They sit on a, a slight rise so that from the from the sort of South Hall windows, you get a tremendous view out across fertile farmland and, and the wider parkland of, of the estate. When was the house built and who was it built for? We talked about the Tellisons in the intro there, but give us a bit more detail. Yeah, it's built remarkably rapidly, actually, between 1861 and 1863. An estate at Brodsworth is recorded way back uh, in the early 11th century. But it's in this mid-Victorian period that uh, Charles Sabine Augustus Tellison and his wife Georgiana, Charles inherits the estate in 1858 and makes the decision to completely refresh and renew what was there. How did they um, generate their wealth and how did they come to get this property? I understand there's quite a complicated story around this. There is. Uh, thanks for raising that. <laughs> yeah, there's two sources. Georgiana comes from the Theobald family and they were wealthy merchants, but her father had a very successful commercial racehorse stud. So there was quite a, an inheritance that came with her. Now for Charles Sabine, Sabine, I'm never quite sure which it is, his paternal great-grandfather, a chap called Peter Tellison, had bought the estate uh, in 1791. Now, he was a banker and a, and a merchant and had amassed a tremendous wealth. Some of it, it has to be said, from the shipping industry connected with the slave trade. He dies in 1797 and he leaves a will with some curious terms that essentially people would inherit once all of his children and all of his grandchildren who were alive at the time that he dies, they themselves have to pass away. So that his, his huge wealth is put in trust, which turns out to be for nearly 60 years, and it accrues an enormous value across that time. And the terms of that will have three interesting effects. One is that an act of parliament is passed to prevent such terms being enacted again because the sheer quantity of money that could be generated uh, was seen as of itself destabilising. Secondly, you have his younger son, Charles, and his son, who was also called Charles, will never inherit. It leaves it to that grandson, Charles's own son, Charles Sabine, to become the person who will inherit that money some 60 years after his death. 
Mm. And I think the third impact is that the, the estate sits in trust. So it's not managed necessarily particularly well across that period. So the, by the time Charles Sabine takes the property, it's not necessarily in the best of conditions. And perhaps that's why he makes this move to completely renew what is there at Brodsworth. And I suppose it's worth mentioning as well that when Charles does inherit this money, this vast, vast fortune, he inherits not the hall that stands today, but a Georgian property that was on the site originally. Yes, a Georgian property and uh, a village that had been raised around that. A church is within the estate as well. Vast farmlands. But he decides that the Georgian Hall is not suitable for his needs, quite antiquated in its form and, and, and a little dilapidated perhaps. So he bulldozes that away and reframes the whole estate, its access roads, where people are living and places this grand new Italianate villa, if you like, in the centre of the estate. So let's bring it back to Georgiana and Charles. Why did they move to that area? Because weren't they based on the South Coast originally? They'd spent the first 10 years of their married life and and where all of their six children were born, in Brighton. But again, in the terms of the will, two people actually split the inheritance and Brodsworth was part of what Charles Sabine was allotted. So they make that decision to move. You can look at it in a way of Charles establishing himself within a sort of landed, wealthy class Brodsworth is a great catch, actually, and he's able to put himself amongst the gentry and the society of South Yorkshire by creating this new family home, yes, but also very much a place for entertaining and for society. Mm. What would the house and wider estate have looked like when it was brand new, when it was just built? Quite stark, I imagine. The, The house is built of local white limestone so it's going to glimmer on this hillside and as Dan will come on to talk about the gardens are very new the shrubs and the trees and the borders and the things that would soften the view of the house have not yet matured inside it's quite a different picture Charles has commissioned a London architect for the house he's commissioned London contractors to build it and he uses London based furnishes to equip and set out his interiors. It's vibrant and it's sumptuous. There are patterned Chinese wallpapers. There are vivid crimson silks. There are plush sort of Axminster carpets, chandeliers. There's gilding across wooden surfaces, painted marble effect on many of the surfaces, coloured mint and tiles. There are rich, dark furnishes with bright red leathers, patterned soft furnishings, white marble sculptures punctuating uh, the hall's interiors. And then added to that, you have sort of the inherited aspects of both families, particularly their paintings, Dutch seascapes and landscapes, horses painted by James Ward, and portraits of ancestors. So it's a sort of internally, it's a single creation, an interior made from scratch, Metropolitan in its style, not extravagant, but really quite sort of luxurious. Yeah, I think listeners can get a real sense of all those colours popping out and a lot of contrast there. Yeah, very much a sort of mid-Victorian taste, not Mm. necessarily the height of fashion, quite conservative perhaps, but you can imagine what we might consider quite gaudy and quite uh, in-your-face sort of interiors, (laughs) really. Yeah, definitely. This is obviously when it's looking great, but... When does it start to decline? Uh, I know it's a very gradual thing over time. 
It is gradual, but even by the late 19th century, there's a long agricultural depression and rents from that estate are falling. And the family's already finding it quite challenging to maintain this lifestyle of sport and leisure underpinned by, you know, large number of servants. They managed in the early 20th century to prop that up a little by leasing the mining rights and Brodsworth Colliery, which starts... I think it's in 1905, becomes one of the major producers in this country right through to the late 20th century. So that gives them a steady source of income. But like so many of these country houses, the First World War has a huge impact. There's a change in society. Servants are no longer as readily available. And actually, the person who inherits in 1919, the last of Charles Sabine's sons, Augustus, he doesn't live at Brosworth. He comes there occasionally in the 1920s, but the hall is, to an extent, mothballed. So by the time Charles's grandson, another Charles, Charles Grant Dalton, and his wife Sylvia West come to live there in 1931, there's a lot of work needs doing, and there's not really the resource as the 20th century goes on, to maintain that ambition, that vision of the 1860s. And gradually, as uh, Charles dies and Sylvia lives there, on until 1988 as a widow, they retract, uh, rooms are closed up, there isn't the money, there's not the servants to maintain the property, and it's really become a rather sorry vestige of what had been created only, what, 120 years earlier. So the last descendant to live at Brodsworth was who exactly? Is that Sylvia? Sylvia, yeah, Sylvia Grant Dalton, sort of indefectible lady by all accounts. There's a rather wonderful recording of her in very close to her death. She's interviewed by Lucinda Lampton and Lucinda says, you know, well, do you love Brodsworth? And she says, no, 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 I don't. I was asked to look after it, but no, I don't really love it. Mm. Um, there's, there's footage of her driving around the place in, in, in an electric scooter down the South Hall and, and her dogs are infamous. Martin will come on to those, I dare say. So it ends with Sylvia, really. And so how does English heritage come into the care of Brodsworth Hall? She dies in 1988. She felt herself as something of a custodian of the hall, but also of its memories and of the, and, and of the family that had lived there. Her daughter recognises this, but she also recognises perhaps the sheer impracticality of her and her husband continuing to live there. And they negotiate to be able to gift the house to English heritage and a very generous grant comes to allow us to buy all of the contents. And when I say all, I mean all, everything. We take everything from those inheritance paintings through to the bits of Tupperware and electric fires that Sylvia was using right close to her death. And we take it in 1990. Thank you very much for that, Kevin. That's really great. I'd like to bring in Martin now to take us back to 1990 when Brodsworth was gifted to the nation. So, Martin, I understand you were at Brodsworth on the very day that it came into the care of English Heritage in 1990. What do you remember of that day? It was an amazing day, to be honest. It was a beautiful spring day, April the 23rd, I think. I was trying to think about this earlier, and it was like being a child in a sweet shop, to be honest. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a curator to be able to take on a property like Brodsworth when it's, you know, you have that opportunity to think about everything, it's conservation, it's presentation from scratch. And so that sort of first week was amazing. I was very junior at the time and my colleagues 
Phyllis Rogers and, and Dorian Church had been involved with the negotiations that Kevin just mentioned, which took about two years, which is why that period from Sylvia's death in 1988, it took until 1990 for us to, uh, mm. to actually... Uh, in fact, our organisation was a little bit reluctant about having Broadsworth, to be honest, at that point, because as an organisation, we didn't have that many country houses. And I think there was a realisation that Broadsworth was a very difficult prospect and also, you know, potentially a money pit for the organisation because of the condition it was in. But as a me, as a junior curator of collections for English Heritage at the time, I was just unbelievably excited about the whole prospect Yeah, in that first week. Could you describe how the property and grounds actually looked when you arrived? Yeah, it was completely different to how it is now. Almost unbelievably so, actually. The very approach to Brodsworth is different. The drive-in at the moment where you come in off the road to Mar was completely overgrown. It didn't really exist. The gates on that drive had been padlocked at the bottom end and that drive was totally overgrown. So the, so the approach to Brodsworth was round the back, as it were, through the home farm. That was the only way in. And then the garden, which Dan will come on to in a minute, was a jungle. And the house was in a terrifying state of decay, suffering from every possible problem that a property could suffer from, from subsidence to rising damp to water coming through the roof to rotting timbers to pests, you name it, Brodsworth was was suffering from it. But that first sunny day, I sort of saw completely past those and I was only thinking about how exciting it all was. Yeah, because there was a lot of history to peel back there. When you walked inside and you saw the interiors, are they different from what we see today as visitors? Obviously, it's worth mentioning that the property has sort of been kept in this sort of managed decline, maintained state, hasn't it? Yeah, at the very start of when we were looking at what to do with Brodsworth, lots of people talked about it as being, you know, the best example, best surviving example of a Victorian country house. And there was a great amount of debate about what we should do with it. Obviously, that didn't happen in the first week. This took several months to formulate. But very early on, it was seen as being important because it was a Victorian country house. But what happened with the team that I was in at the time, looking at how we would approach the presentation of Brodsworth, it it became clear really quickly. The the things that Kevin was talking about, you know, the Tupperware in the kitchen was as important in telling that story as maybe some of the, you know, the really fine paintings in the dining room. And we wanted to get that across, that it was about this story of a house that was, you know, the amazing will at the beginning, and then this sort of fabulous new building, and then its gradual decline through the 20th century due to the First World War and then the Second World War. And then finally, you know, this, like so many country houses in England, you know, every village had its country house like Brodsworth, and so many of them have disappeared. And so we felt it was really important that we told that story from its inception, actually going back before the Tellersons, but particularly focusing on that sort of late 19th century, right the way through to 1988. And so the intention, in a sense, was to try and stop the clock at 19. 88. So mm. we hope, your question was about, you know, is it different and what visitors see now to how it was back in 1990? Well, yes, it is because it's a conserved house and it's essentially a museum and the objects are cared for. Whereas in 1990, 
it was in the very last stages. We got there just before it was too late. The building was collapsing and the collections were almost all in an appalling condition. You know, they were attacked by pests. They were dirty, damaged. Every object that you picked up, even in that first week, I remember quite vividly, and I think somewhere in the archive there's a photo of I lifted up one of the carpets and underneath it was just this wriggling mass of moth larvae, which were there very happily chomping their way through this, you know, beautiful Axminster star carpet that was specially woven for frauds within in about 1862. And all of the objects were in need of a great deal of care and attention. Mm. Did you feel daunted then by the task ahead or were you filled with horror or hope? Uh, it was still, you know, it was still a, a very exciting prospect for us, to be honest. So yes, it was daunting. In many ways, the structural problems with the building were more daunting. The building needed a completely new roof, um, and there were all sorts of structural issues that needed be, to be addressed, you know, to, to deal with the subsidence and so on. That was a massive undertaking. Initially, the intention that it would take three years to do the work, and we realised very soon that that was just not going to be the case. How long did um, it take in the end? It took five years in the end. We, we eventually opened to the public in the summer of, of 1995. So it was, you know, as with a lot of projects, it took longer and it cost more. But we did a very thorough job. And obviously Kevin's team now is continuing with all that work we started back in the early 1990s. Of course, and Dan working on the gardens as well. And we'll come to Dan soon to talk about the gardens. He's waiting patiently. But I just want to bring back in Kevin, actually, now to pick up the story. So the house is obviously described as, as we've been describing, as a time capsule following the decision to leave much of it unchanged. But why was the decision to made to, in inverted commas, conserve as found? Martin sort of covered some of that. Three distinct approaches were taken, I suppose. The house was in a shocking condition, so there was no question but to repair the house, to repair those services and those limestone finishes and and put new stuff in. Dan will come to the gardens. That's about restoration, to bring back the Victorian scheme. In the house, it's about trying to retain the character of the house that we took on. Conservers found is a slightly misleading and, and difficult term because it suggests that nothing changes and as as Martin alluded to what we have there is is an evocation of the house that we found we're trying to capture the eclectic mix of old and new the idea of reduce and make do and the personal ephemera the layers that had built in that property to give it that sort of character but amongst that could we hold it in stasis? Could we could we keep those textiles from fraying to dust, those wallpapers from peeling from the walls? Could we preserve pretty much the effect of time and neglect, the fragility, the worn appearance of the place that really gives Brodsworth its special character, I think? Tell us then about some of the most urgent priorities for conservation in the house. I think probably the textiles, uh, Martin's just talked about moth larvae, every kind of threat that could be wrought upon fragile hundred-year-old textiles was there from from sunlight fraying and sort of dismantling the structure of the fabrics to insect pests, to changes in moisture and damp that create mould. It's such an enormous job, and Brodsworth is so rich in its textiles such a 
delicate and long-lasting and ongoing task to try and prevent those from further decay and from losing them. What do you do when you're actually monitoring them today? I mean, do you have humidity sensors and that sort of thing? And do you have to keep doing touch-ups here and there? There's a regime of monitoring light levels and allowing only so much sunlight. There's a regime of sort of condition reports and photographs so we can actually look across a period of one or two or five years and establish, well, how far have these things degraded in that time? Specialist conservators are brought in to gradually restitch or apply new invisible netting to hold together textiles and individual threads that want to separate and, and turn to dust. It, it's an enormous sort of behind the scenes task and an incredibly delicate process. And are those the main challenges now as, as, as we move through time in terms of looking after the house? Because it obviously is in decline. When you, For people who haven't seen it, when you're walking around, you do think, wow, this place has really seen time eating away at it in a way. What's the hardest challenge as we work through the future? Well, I think you've just said as people as people walk around, it's the hardest challenge in many ways is this balance between trying to hold the place in stasis but allowing public access. I mean, we could close the doors, we could keep the place dark, we could put in systems that absolutely manage the environment and we could negate decay to a large extent. But if you're going to have literally tens of thousands of people coming through that building appreciating the spaces, understanding why on earth we looked after it in the first place. That really is the challenge. How do you enable public access, public understanding, public enjoyment with preventing the very thing that leads to that enjoyment decaying as years go on? Mm. Well, a fantastic story there from Kevin. But let's now fling open the, the doors and move out into the garden, so to speak. And we're going to bring in Dan Hale, who's the head gardener at Brodsworth Hall. Dan, for people who don't know them, how would you describe the gardens at Brodsworth Hall today? So we always describe the gardens at Brodsworth as a series of garden rooms. And basically that's through the clever use of topography of the trees and shrubs on site. It's a high Victorian formal garden. And like we've said, the kind of Italianate feel from the house flows out into the garden. And that's through the, the statues there. So they were brought in by Cassantini, who was uh, brought in by the family to source statuary in the house and gardens. So we've got Italian marble statues, steps and urns running through there. Brosworth's also famous for its topiary. Uh, we've got well over a thousand individual pieces of topiary on site huge expanse of flower garden which we've got 26,000 bedding plants in there at any given time a ferndale so basically what we've got is is all the kind of key features of a victorian garden with a splash of the georgian landscape in there and a few edwardian elements um, as well okay uh, what are the georgian and edwardian elements that you sort of hark back to so some of the trees obviously on site obviously date back to the Georgian times. We've got an amazing cedar of Lebanon or Cedrus Libani um, on the front lawn, which would have been planted as part of the original Georgian landscape. So that predates the house and everything in around that area. Um, and then when we talk kind of going back into the, the Edwardian side, that's when we've started to look at um, the target garden area that was planted um, and, and kind of what we call 
um, the lady's garden, which would have been kind of managed um, by the family mm. um, rather than actually having the gardens gardens in there. We've been talking about the managed decline of Broadsworth Hall, the house itself, really. But when we talk about nature and gardening, things are constant, constantly in a cycle of rebirth and renewal, aren't they? Yeah. Um, with the seasons. And um, when did you sort of come into your job there at Broadsworth? So I've been at Broadsworth now five years. Five years. Um, okay. So in 1990, dare I say, how old were you? <laughs> I would have been three years old. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, so, so I just struggled to manage the garden at that stage. I think so. <laughs> Although you probably were playing in your own garden at the time, not knowing the, yeah. the destiny that was about to sort of befall exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. So you came to Broadsworth eventually, and do you know from the history what, what the state of the gardens were? And yeah, can I you mean, describe I mean, them the, versus... The today? gardens had become completely overgrown, just a kind of series of cell sets everywhere. So you've got sycamores and ash... For example, the target range, what we call now, that was just basically a woodland, all the kind of external garden buildings. So obviously the eye catcher, the target house, the privy, all these buildings are kind of falling into complete disrepair, where certain areas there were just complete you know, no access. Ivy had kind of taken over a lot of areas of the garden. But then in a way that was lucky as well, because what it did allow is underneath all this was the was the Victorian garden, because obviously as time gone on, the family had run out of money. Gardeners were getting less and less. They didn't actually follow kind of the trends of, of the fashion in gardening. So coming from the formality side into the Edwardian side, where it was more of a relaxed approach in gardening, you still had the under, underbelly of the, you know, the formality of the Victorian garden with the topery. A lot of the kind of topiary elements we've got in the gardens are actually some of the original plantings that were kind of what we call hack-racked, so reduced right back to the ground and then allowed to grow back out and then reshaped. So when the work happened, obviously, before your time um, to revive and cut everything back, did they have to rely on pictures and designs from the past in order to present a sort of accurate portrayal of the gardens? Yeah, we're really lucky at Broswell that we've got a fantastic um, archive and an amazing uh, volunteer archive team as well. So we've got kind of recordings, notes on what plants were brought in, um, and an amazing um, photo collection as well. So we work to a conservation management plan. So each area of the gardens um, researched, and we've got all the pictures. We've got what the idea is um, in that area of the garden, how we're going to restore it, and what the plan is moving forward with each area as well. Hmm. And does the garden evolve now under your leadership today? Yeah, I mean, since I've been at Broadsworth five years, I've done a project each year. So it started off with the privy. So we restored the old garden privy toilet, mm-hmm. um, which was quite a quirky one to do as the first project, but we also put a garden in around the privy when we do these projects it's um obviously always researched and and the plantings always period correct to the area so we looked at 1860s specific introduction date plants but then we also wanted to tie in kind of the idea of well if it's a privy the family would have wanted to have been seen so it had a sunken pathway the beds are raised and then we've got things like philadelphus in there which are really strong scented plants. Mm-hmm. What kind of colour? The Philadelphia, so the mock orange, the white ones, but you, you've got hydrangeas, Annabelle in there. 
iris fetidis and uh, you know it's a really strong centered area because obviously we thought that would, you know in a toilet area you <laughs> yeah. want the strong scent um to kind of counterbalance um, really you know but we, we use the the maps from the 1860s to put in the you know the complete original pathway mm. it all started actually when i went a walk a walk around with um, the senior gardens advisor and head of gardens and we kind of came across this area which was completely screened off now by a hue hedge that kind of run the full perimeter and all you could see was a mound of ivy and in the middle of this mound of ivy was about an eight foot tall mound of ivy and i kind of said to john and michael do we know what what's going on in this area um and then we went over with got the secretaries out clipped a little bit away and we started to unveil this um privy and that's how it kind of really started with the Right, it's called mini, mini sit projects. So, when was that um, discovered? Then that privy, John obviously Michael knew about it, but I'd only been there a couple of weeks. So, to me, it was kind of, oh, what's this little area of the garden? Right. Um, so, when we started discussing it, it became quite apparent that it was quite a key feature of the garden that we'd not really um, restored yet. So, we did the research and were lucky enough to kind of get the funding to uh, restore the building. And putting the garden around it and it's become one of the most loved parts of the garden now that's really interesting um, it was just literally lying waiting undiscovered for yeah for yeah. you to do some work there yeah that's yeah. fascinating how many people were working in the gardening team with you at broadsworth then so there's uh, myself garden supervisor senior gardener and then three full-time gardeners but i've got around about 50 garden volunteers now um hmm. so when i started i think there was around 15 garden volunteers so we've really managed to kind of grow them numbers each year now and um, so we also have garden stewards um and garden volunteer tour guides as well okay so it sounds like you're pretty well stocked in terms of having green fingers around that's the thing with Brozov. it's not the biggest garden but what it is is it's it's every area of the garden is what we call gardened it's really formal so every area's always got to look clipped you know the, the amount of torpery alone you know is, is is months on end of work um so we'd really struggle to be honest if we didn't have such a big volunteer team to help us and for non-gardeners tell us what topiary is uh, so topiary is basically an art form of shrubs at broswith we've got a series of spirals pyramid shapes you know it's, it's basically um shaping trees and shrubs into beautiful art forms really yeah um, which, which takes years of practice but we've managed to kind of work with the volunteers now try and get them kind of get there what we call get the eye trained and i was saying to the guys it's it's all about training the eye but if you can get your eye right that can go down to striping the lawns you know straight edges topiary even down to planting the um the flower garden yes um, you know it's, it's all got to be kind of you know trained to the point where you know it's, it's all about symmetry the garden's all about symmetry so if, if it one lines out it kind of completely throws the balance so in some respects, you're balancing out the sort of decline in the house by breathing real new life into the natural setting of the garden. You're really nurturing that setting. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I suppose with the garden, it's, all, it's always been about restoration. It's always been trying to create the perfect example of a Victorian garden. You know, a lot of people kind of say, you know, is it a miniature version of the gardens at Osborne? 
you know, with all those kind of key elements in there. But what it is, is you want your people, it's the wow factor. You know, you, you walk into the garden and you can just see people's reactions as soon as they turn around the corner, coming round down South Terrace and they get the first glimpse of the croquet lawns and the topiary beds. And then they walk into the centre point and the, the glimpse of the fountain, which is then going to draw you down the path into the Victorian flower garden, which, like I said, you know, it's 26,000 bedding plants, which has changed twice a year. And that alone is weeks of work, but it's that wow factor. Brodsworth's got a lot of evergreens because the family spent time living in Tuscany. And that kind of comes back to the Italianate style feel that we're trying to achieve. And that and they generated that through the, the lush thousands of evergreens that we've got all across Brodsworth that really does give it that Italian feel to the garden, mixed in with the bright white of the marble statues and urns and steps. I just want to ask one more thing, actually, about your gardening team. How does it compare to the team that would have existed in the past? In the, in the Victorian times, they would have had 25 to 30 gardeners working on the estate. But obviously, we combat that through you know, the machinery that we use now and, and the volunteers. And um, we don't have the walled kitchen garden, which obviously would have been a lot of work, which is still uh, an area that we don't actually own at the moment. Oh, right. Um, so there would have been a lot more land, you know, and a lot more space for the uh, Victorian gardens to actually work. But like I said, you know, we've got all the modern, we've got the tractors, you know, the petrol edge cutters, the strummers, things that can kind of counterbalance what, what they get, those guys would have had to have done. We did a few years back a kind of compare contrast Victorian gardening techniques to modern techniques just to kind of showcase the differences and you know, how we manage things now to what they would have done then but there's still a lot of crossover i've really tried to come away from petrol edge cutters and battery edge cutters as much as i can to try and get back to um clipping everything by hand you know the old-fashioned way but it's also beneficial to the shrubs you know if you can do it well you get a much better finish and, and the health of the plants is much better as well mm. so um, t- so to sum up the gardens from your perspective i suppose it's to try and be as authentic as possible to the victorian period and to just create that wow factor for visitors yeah the idea is to create the perfect example of victorian garden so you you can walk around there and each plant that we're adding in each tree that we're adding in you know would have been available in the victorian time so you're almost immersing yourself into that perfect victorian garden experience thanks for that dan i'm going to bring back in kevin now to talk a bit more about the maintenance of Broadsworth and the hall itself. That's obviously a key responsibility for you. And I gather there was a major conservation project launched in 2017. Why was that needed and what issues did it set out to resolve? I think much like for the Tellersons themselves, you have to continually renew some of the basics in a building like Broadsworth. And having had the place in our care for 20, 25 years, heating systems, basic electrics, all sort of aspects of the of the sort of the utilities of the building start to run their course. Fire safety measures change. You have to put in new measures to remain compliant. All terribly dull. But once you have to carry out a project like that in a delicate interior such as Brodsworth, it's an enormously sensitive task. 
one of the main factors were the, the historic shutters that had been installed by the architect Wilkinson when the place was built. The sort of thing you'd see in a London shop front in 1860 were translated and transplanted into Brodsworth. Those, the winding mechanisms, were internal. In order to get at these things which had seized and which were, were causing all sorts of manual handling issues to our, our stewards, you had to dissemble areas of the interiors, take silk pelmets down, remove silk wall furnishings, remove masses of delicate furnishings just to get at the boxes that contained the winding mechanism. It was a huge and intensive job and doubtless in a couple of decades it will come round again. And they're one of the key things that you notice, uh, especially if you're arriving first thing in the morning like we did in a previous episode, you see the, the unwinding and the shutters going up and the light flooding in. So, yeah, they're, they're a, an impressive a pro- piece. A process you would have seen, you know, throughout the hall's history, the servants coming in in the morning and opening the shutters and preparing the space for family life. We have to do the same for visitors coming round. Hmm. Going forward after that major conservation project in 2017, what are the top priorities for the last three years and as we move beyond 2020? For me, conservation is always underlying, it's always ongoing. But we're thinking about how we can bring more life into the interiors, how we can sort of repopulate the spaces, I suppose, with family life and with a, with, with a sense of atmosphere. They are quite static at the moment. You do walk around, it's very quiet. You're greeted by one of our fantastic stewards, volunteer stewards, who will tell you something about the space. But trying to get a sense of actually how the space is really felt, particularly in the late Victorian Edwardian period. Last year, we introduced a, a, a music project. We we brought uh, American harmoniums, uh, which are sort of enormous paddle organs, back into the house. And we got a specialist, an expert, to come and play these machi- these machines. And we recorded various staff members playing violins or pianos, or in, in my case, embarrassingly, a banjo. And we broadcast those sounds, those sounds of sheet music that the family had played themselves or indeed had written themselves or that some of their favorite early records that they'd had within gramophones with enormous sound horns sticking out of them which we found in the tremendous archive that Broadsworth has so we played this music and just created a whole different experience that's my priority now how do we move on and bring life and narratives personal stories back into those incredible, if startlingly sort of degraded spaces. And the garden stand, do you have any projects that you've been working on in the last few years and that you're planning for the future? So in the gardens, the last few years, we've restored quite a few different areas. Last year, we did the target range or target garden. The year before that, we did the game larder. Over the winter, we restored parts of the rose garden and the, uh, the first project that we did in kind of 2016 17 crossover was the uh, privy garden as well so we're always you know we're, we're always finding areas of the garden even if it's not kind of a full restoration you know gardens can always improve you, know, mm. you, can, you can always add those extra layers of planting you know that's just kind of gonna you know push that area to the next level really so we you know we're constantly looking constantly trying to you know create this perfect victorian garden that's just gonna have that wow factor and drive visitor numbers for rodsworth really 
You mentioned the Rose Gardens as well. I believe they were due to be restored in time for the 30th anniversary. Did you manage to complete that work? Yeah, we've completed that probably about six weeks ago now. So we've added in about 250 classic roses into the scheme. And what we added in as well is um, standard roses. But when we looked in the records, they were kind of called tree roses. And we could see some of the photographs, you know, the, the standards kind of popping up above the rest of the roses. And there was um, some cross paths that had been added in in the 90s. But the original design from the 1860s was to have one long flowing sinuous rose border. So we take, we've taken out the old pathways, filled that in, and that's where we've added the additional 200 plus roses. To be honest with you now, it's, it's probably one of the largest rose borders in the country and kind of adds to our rose collection that we've got. because um, so we've got a rose dell as well, which is full of species rambling roses which is kind of at the end of the rose garden. Um, and we've added um, all new rose climbers at the base of the, the rose arch, Victorian arch, original Victorian ironwork, to start, you know, over time, getting them to a level where they can start replacing some of the older roses because everything's got a lifespan, you know, to kind of take, take their place as, as they you know, come to the end. Of course. Going back to you, Kevin, we've described all the past present and future in a way of the house and the gardens but how unique would you say is Brodsworth Hall when it comes to Victorian country homes that are in the care of English heritage? I suppose it has a direct counterpart really in Osborne House on the Isle of Isle of Wight, an Italianate mansion, a completely new estate formed just 15 years before Brodsworth as a family home and a place for entertainment. The, the distinction there is that that was for one of the most well-known couples in English history, uh, Queen Victoria and the consort Prince Albert. Charles Sabine, Sabine Tellison was not a man who's particularly troubled the national story. Um, his house and his interiors, the thing about them is that they're not exceptional. They're not celebrated in that way but that's what makes Brodsworth so special. It's not a story of the great and good. It's a story of a, a relatively, if I can say, ordinary wealthy family and its struggles and the remarkable and coherent survival of their vision, really. And that's why it's an important property as well to have in the collection and for people to be able to look around, I suppose. Well, absolutely. And it, it gives you this sort of this contrasting picture, as Dan's talking about, the magnificent Victorian vision and the way that whole garden and house are conceived as a piece. But then also this tremendous conservation challenge and this tremendous sense of poignancy, I suppose, as you as you understand the struggles of the family and the struggles of, of materiality as 130, 140 years go past. And I suppose what it tells us about life is that um, fortunes do change, don't they? And um, events in the world, whether it's World War One or, or whatever, can really suddenly turn your luck upside down. And, and I suppose Brodsworth is, is an example of uh, world events, but also personal events and, and personal it, fortunes changing. It's one of the great strengths of of the English Heritage portfolio altogether, I would say, but Brodsworth absolutely gives you a sense of 130 years of social change, of change in ideas of service and patronage, of taste and fashion, of, of politics. But it's also, it's underpinned by personalities. And at Brodsworth, we, we really can say so much about the family 
their approach, their attitudes, and the stories of individuals. Mm. Uh, Dan, what's your favourite area of the house and maybe even the gardens? Because obviously you spend a lot of time in the garden, but uh, do you have a favourite <laughs> part of the house? It's got to be the Victorian kitchen for me um, in the house. I think it's superb, actually. And it's in I the centre, isn't it? As, as I see, yeah, it's, it's one of the. Yeah, it's definitely the wow factor for me. I think you know, even going to Brodsworth, you know, as a visitor before I started working there, that was always the you know the one room that was I was always drawn into. Really, Dan, as a curator, I'm absolutely delighted to hear a gardener say one of the rooms in the interiors is your favourite. No, but it's, you know, it's true. It's um, it's fantastic in there. But then I suppose garden-wise is really difficult. I think for us visitors and the main bulk of people that visit Brodsworth, I think everybody would say the Ferndale. That's the big wow factor. It's a one of a kind, something that we should be talking about and celebrating a lot more that we've got there at Brodsworth. But for me, I'm a real stickler for Victorian bedding schemes. The fact that we've got one of the biggest flower gardens in the country the fact that we can change it twice a year it's a way that myself and the team can express ourselves as gardeners with the different planting combinations and colors and to see people's reactions when they walk through into there and you know people just standing just smiling and you know just taking it all in I I think that's probably got to be the winner for me. Mm. It's a story really of maintenance and revival in some respects, this sort of careful balance between the two, whether it's inside or outside. Martin, you've obviously been listening to how this entire interview has progressed over time. Are you pleased at how Brodsworth Hall has turned out 30 years since it was gifted to the nation and you were there when it when it first happened? Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted, although Dan made me feel exceptionally old a few minutes ago when he said he was three when I was working at Brodsworth Hall, and I'm still working for English Heritage after all those years on projects around the country, not in the north of Brodsworth anymore. But uh, the current team at Brodsworth, Kevin's team and Dan's team, are doing a fantastic job. As I say, it's a real delight to see what's happened to Brodsworth since I was working there over the years. It's one of the most thoroughly researched houses. It's the most, probably the most well understood Victorian house in the world, let alone in England, which is what sets it apart in so many ways, enable people to uh, look at national events through the sort of prism of a country house in, in Yorkshire. So I'd like to think that visitors, when they come to Broadway, still get something of that sense of wonder those untold stories ready to be discovered that I was aware of on that spring day back in 1990. And I'm hopeful that it will continue to be researched by curators and cared for by the conservators and the gardeners for certainly another 30 years, maybe hopefully another 130 years. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about Brodsworth Hall and Gardens, or to plan a visit, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we're back to discover how the arrival of the railways transforms the landscape and people's lives in England. Of course, that isn't just a piece of kind of social good, that's also good business sense on the part of the railways themselves. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>